Welcome to Challenging Climate, a podcast where we discuss the science, technology, and politics of climate change. I'm Pete Irvin, a climate scientist. And I'm Jesse Reynolds, an environmental policy expert. Each episode, we bring on a guest with a unique perspective and deep expertise on climate change and put challenging questions to them. In this episode, we spoke with Holly Buck, and uh, Jesse and I have known Holly for several years uh, through our work on geoengineering. And always her contributions have been insightful and thought-provoking, and I think uh, this conversation was no exception. She's um, written a number of books um, after geoengineering. Uh, has it come to this, an edited volume on the promise and perils of geoengineering on the brink? And her latest book, which is the focus of our conversation, Ending Fossil Fuels, Why Net Zero is Not Enough. I find Holly to be one of the most consistently interesting scholars in the climate change and technology space. I genuinely don't know what she will say next. And I think the basis for that, what makes her work interesting to me, is that she uh, clearly identifies with the political left, and she is an, an academic geographer and sociologist. But at the same time, she keeps a very open mind to the ways in which powerful, large-scale technologies may be able to help manage climate change. Yeah, I agree. I think I think Holly's really interesting, perhaps unusual, in that she she seems to be able to bridge between perspectives I think often are not held by the same person often. So she she sort of takes seriously both the potential and desire for social and political transformation, but tempers that or balances that against an understanding of the hard physical realities of climate change, the uncomfortable truths, um, the economic trade-offs. And I think often you have people who know lots about one or think a lot about the other, but rarely do they come together so well. And um, yeah, I, I think I think that kind of pragmatism and idealism, that combination is, is on display in her um, in, in, in this interview. And um, I hope you all enjoy it. And now our conversation with Holly Buck. This week, it's my pleasure to welcome Holly Buck to Challenging Climate. Uh, thanks for joining us, Holly. Very happy to be here. Holly is an assistant professor at the Department of Environment and Sustainability at the University of Buffalo, and uh, much of her research focuses on the challenges and opportunities that carbon dioxide removal technologies will present as they're developed. And today, we'll be talking about her new book, Ending Fossil Fuels, Why Net Zero is Not Enough. But before we get into that, Holly, could you give us a little bit of a background? How did you get into your research interests? Well, I actually came to thinking about ending fossil fuels. It's been known to be a goal and a demand for many, many years. But like a lot of people, I just thought of it in the background, like something obvious, like a fact. And so I, my research actually focused on climate intervention, because that seemed to me to be less well understood, newer, something that required social science research. And so I've been researching that for about 10 years now on the social science side. How is policy made around this? What do different people think about it? Some of these pretty basic questions. And then we've talked a lot about in the climate engineering community about this issue of moral hazard or mitigation deterrent. Solar geoengineering, carbon removal, carbon capture and storage are these things that are going to delay mitigation, reduce energy or the will to cut emissions. And that was kind of my starting point for thinking about phasing out fossil fuels, because to me, 
you know, you can list all these concerns that are speculative about moral hazard, but if you wanted to do something about them, you would be enthusiastically phasing out fossil fuels. I started looking at the literature around phasing out fossil fuels, and I expected there would be a lot more than there was in terms of detailed plans about how to end or transform this industry. There just wasn't too much, so I ended up writing a little book about it, which I intend to be not like the answer, but a contribution to a conversation that needs a lot more voices. Yeah, your book is um, why net zero is not enough. So perhaps you could start by explaining, well, first, what is carbon dioxide removal and, and how does it make net zero possible? So this book is kind of a double book. It's about phase out of fossil fuels. It's also about net zero. And where did this concept come from? What does it even mean? Why are we talking about net zero emissions rather than zero emissions? And the answer to that is we're very late with mitigation. And so there are also things that we don't know how to decarbonize all the way, although that is changing. So in terms of thinking about 2050, when the science says that we need to be at net zero emissions, basically for these temperature targets, there's still projected to be some amount of leftover emissions that are compensated for by carbon dioxide removal strategies. There's a bunch of different things that can work to remove carbon from the atmosphere and put it somewhere else. It can be put into forests, soils, ecosystems, oceans. It can also be managed with industrial technologies and injected into rock formations underground. And that's basically a a time buying strategy in, in some regards to buy more time for this energy transition, which is slow because corporate actors have delayed and politicians have delayed, but is also slow because there's just a few things that are technically challenging to decarbonize. And so it's not enough and at zero, you know, because it's really focusing on emissions. That's been the the focus point of climate policy, what happens after fossil fuels are combusted. And so we're not talking about the production of fossil fuels, how to change that. The other thing about net zero is it's not specific about how many leftover emissions we have. And by that regard, what sort of a infrastructure we need to remove them. Net zero could mean that we have 10 billion tons of carbon that are still being emitted and some vast industrial infrastructure for storing those 10 billion tons elsewhere, which is really pretty far-fetched given the maturity of these approaches and technologies and our ability to govern them. So I think it's much more realistic to try to plan for one or two billion tons of leftover emissions and that corresponding removal of carbon infrastructure for carbon removal. From the scientific point of view, there's, I think, the net zero idea and, and the related finding that's quite robust is that the total amount of global warming we get is proportional to the cumulative amount of CO2 that we emit. And that the only way to halt warming is to eliminate net emissions. From the climate's point of view, it doesn't matter if there's 10 gigatons of residual emissions that are offset by minus 10 gigatons. You've highlighted some of the the reasons why we should go further. There's multiple net zero emission scenarios. You could have a an absolute zero emission scenario. You could have low residual emissions compensated by a modest amount of carbon dioxide removal, or you could have a higher emissions scenario compensated by a greater amount of carbon dioxide removal. Feasibility aside of 
huge amounts of carbon dioxide removal. What are some reasons that a low residual emission scenario is preferable? There's a lot of reasons that we need to phase out fossil fuels. One of them is public health. We've maybe all heard by now the the study that found that in 2018, air pollution from fossil fuels was responsible for 8.7 million deaths. So pollution accounted for one of in five of all deaths that year, especially in Asia, especially in vulnerable communities. So tremendous health impacts from combustion of fossil fuels. I would also argue that fossil fuels have a role in oppression, corruption, poverty, perhaps also war and conflict in some instances. I don't think that there's actually a curse on the commodity, and there's big literature and political science around this. But I do think that there's ways in which fossil fuels have lent themselves to bad management, bad governance, which is they're entangled with now. It's it's kind of hard to change that. And I'm also concerned about, you know, sudden destabilizations of the the financial system with regards to fossil fuels and kind of an unmanaged or uneven phase out. That's why I think we need a, a planned phase out of fossil fuels, not just ad hoc sort of moving away from that we see right now. To what extent, though, are those challenges, those problems, those negative effects specific to fossil fuels or specific to large-scale energy production? Because the idea that you suggest with a low residual emission scenario is that the world can still be relatively high energy. You're not calling for a, a dramatic constriction of energy consumption. So this would be a world of still high energy production, but largely through renewables. Might it be the case that these challenges that you speak of, corrupt governments whose decisions are unduly influenced by large corporations, different governments may be corrupt, but in similar ways by the influence of large renewable corporations, problems that don't yet manifest now because solar and wind are still just a few percent of global energy production. Yeah, that's something I'm really concerned about, that we're going to end up reproducing a lot of these power relations with renewables. You can see some signs of that already in a few places, and including a backlash to things like wind and solar, in part because local communities aren't seeing the benefits they're seeing their landscapes turned into energy production zones for consumers in some distant place without really being compensated for it. There's the risks of some of that. There's also the opportunity to learn from our mistakes and do it better this time around with this sort of energy infrastructure. And I think there's also a debate around, you know, whether there's something unique to the the fossil fuels in terms of the geography of where they can be produced and the high rents they produce. I think that people have argued that with renewables, you can more easily have a decentralized structure for them. And so I think those arguments have some merit. Something that you mentioned already in the context of CDR and many others have suggested this as well, that large-scale carbon dioxide removal is not feasible, not at the scales that are proposed in models. There's this danger of, of hype that we're making current decisions based upon uh, assumptions of future technological developments. Are there analogous concerns that we should be taking more seriously around renewables, around the scalability of wind and solar and, and hydropower, I suppose, as well? 
I think the concerns are pretty similar, actually, in terms of the things that would limit the construction of these. Actually, they're directly related in some instances because you need a big scale up of renewables to power direct air capture at large scale, for example. So I see them the same way in that they need more government support than they have. They need There's going to be limitations on land. I see that as one of the biggest constraints. I mean, this is why there's such interest in offshore technologies, both with renewables and with carbon removal to expand with those constraints. But, you know, with renewables, one of the main constraints is just that fossil fuels have been abundant and cheap. With phasing those out, I think that allow for greater development of renewables. In your book, you're not just cheerleading for, for the end of fossil fuels. You do like deal quite seriously with the difficulties that would come with ending fossils. What are some of those beyond the um, limits of renewables? Yeah, I've gotten that feedback. Actually, some people have felt very daunted by this book, which, you know, I think we have to be realistic about the challenges if we want to make progress with it. Fossil fuels are still providing more than 80% of primary energy, even though wind and solar have grown very fast. Um, they're still providing just about 5%. And then we've got some hydro and some nuclear. At the same time, there's about 770 million people in the world who don't have access to electricity. Many others don't have access to energy for clean cooking. So we have to increase access to energy while also decarbonizing it. And that's a huge infrastructure and financing challenge. Another consideration is that over half of global oil production, and even more than that of reserves, is owned by national oil companies. So companies that are fully or majority owned by governments, and you might think that make it easier to stop using them if the people own these resources, but it's challenging because governments are deriving revenues from fossil fuels in all these different forms, licenses, taxes, and so they need to you know, strategically change their revenue sources to not depend on fossil fuels. Another challenge is that just that there's millions of people working in the fossil fuel industry, and those jobs are concentrated in particular communities, particular geographies. So those regions need extra support in moving away to some other forms of economic basis for their regions. It seems to me that the prospects of phasing out the different fossil fuels are quite different. We almost had an agreement to do so at the recent uh, COP in Glasgow. So how does it look for coal, oil and gas? You know, we have a phase down of coal, at least talked about. And that's partly grounded in the economic reality. So coal is more expensive than renewables in many places. It's also a fuel with some of the worst public health impacts. I think there's a growing consensus that coal is being exited. Oil and gas, obviously more difficult, especially gas that will be the hardest to turn away from. The idea of phasing out versus phasing down. I think you mentioned in the book, there are some there's going to be some really hard and really valuable uses for oil and gas that are going to be very difficult to, to get rid of. Just wanted to challenge you on those last residual uses. If the promises are delivered and we can largely eliminate the emissions from the fossil fuels or completely eliminate them, whether that's through, I mean, I like that you mentioned the alum cycle gas power plant, which is an idea that I found very interesting, that a power plant that uses pure oxygen and, and methane to produce a pure stream of CO2 that can just be pumped directly underground. And, with no emissions to, to the atmosphere, I think. 
With ideas like this and the limitations on renewables, a plant like that, which you can turn on or off, could really help, makes it much easier to, to supply power in a very high renewable grid. And given that oil is used for building plastics and for other chemical feedstocks, what is the benefits of getting rid of these last resources and replacing them with alternatives? Could the alternatives be worse? Yeah, and in some cases, we don't have the alternatives yet. I think that you know, as much as natural gas as a bridge fuel has been derided as a, as a phrase, that really is sort of the role for something like an alum cycle natural gas plant or something we're going to need to use these in mid-century as part of the transition. But I mean, are we going to be still using them in 2100, 2200? Won't we have better things? Well, we're more likely to have better things if these fossil fuels aren't stifling innovation like they have for a long time. Like, I think that it's fair to see some amount of gas in the next few decades as part of that transition, but we need to really be strategically trying to imagine, you know, what's the energy system in 2100? We're still limited, you know, in scope, mostly to talking about 2050. And I understand that that's in part because we don't have the mature technologies or even know what they would be, right? There's an element of forecasting there. Not necessarily fusion, but advanced geothermal. There's a lot of different things, green hydrogen, that we need to be thinking about. And so the alternatives, you know, some of them might be worse, but eventually I think they'll be better than fossil fuels. And fossil fuels will be viewed as this kind of archaic, dirty fuel that provided us a lot of growth at one point as a species, but ultimately are not going to be the best thing around. Just to push on one point there, I think fossil fuels as a source of energy and a fuel, it seems quite likely we can replace, but as a feedstock of materials to produce things, chemicals and plastics and so on, what are the alternatives? Is this just a matter of biological feedstocks? Because I have some worries about biofuels or biologically sourced material being drawn on quite heavily. A lot of visions for the future involve a lot of land being devoted to replacing stuff that we, we get from other places. This book doesn't discuss the materials transition. If I was to go back in time a year and rewrite it, I definitely would. Because I think we need to be thinking about this energy transition and this materials transition in tandem. And so we get some frameworks that sort of try to do that, like the circular carbon economy framework. So in terms of replacing petrochemical feedstocks, I think that we need more innovation and support for bioplastics, biological materials. And I think there's exciting stuff that is increasingly possible there. But I also think that, you know, if this idea of recycling CO2 into products, into fuels becomes a thing, you know, I, I support that. My caution around it all is just that we've done such a poor job with recycling and the circular economy generally, and that I don't want to just say, okay, let's keep producing more plastics, more petrochemicals. We haven't been serious about changing that really. Moving back to energy a little bit, looking toward the future and, you know, how we get from here to there and and where there is, your book emphasizes renewables, implicitly solar and wind. Is there a role for nuclear energy in this transition? You don't rule it out, 
you touch on it in a couple spots in the book, but I wasn't really clear with with your vision about how this could and should fit in. I think that, you know, we need democratic decisions about these different roadmaps. Personally, I think a lot of this is much, much easier with nuclear, much more difficult without it because of these land constraints and renewables and other sorts of constraints. So, you know, I really support investment in new nuclear technologies for that reason. I mean, the book is so focused on like the phase out part rather than the ramping up of the clean energy part, just because there's so much good writing out there already about building up the new. There just was this gap of things about ending the old. Right, exactly. And what I like reading in your book is its focus on what do we do with the old? So we have energy companies, which right now are largely fossil fuel companies, and they have assets. What should be done with the firms and with the assets as we move into an energy transition? Yeah, I mean, they have assets and they also have liabilities. And so we're probably going to be ending up taking on those liabilities as the people, the government, because that's what happens. So given that, we might as well just step up and take over all of it in order to direct this transformation, because you can't just wave a magic wand and make these entities go away. They have people, infrastructure. My argument is that we should be directing the transformation of them into carbon capture and storage slash carbon removal companies because they have the expertise to, you know, with the geology to put this carbon back underground. And we we should set it up so that they have a minimal amount of profit to pay their workers to do this. And in terms of assets, there would be these so-called stranded assets, investments that were made on the presumption that they would be profitable under conditions roughly like what we have now, but in a future in which fossil fuels have been phased out, would largely lose their value. Should the holders of stranded assets be compensated? Is it a type of a what a lawyer would call regulatory taking, something that has been taken by the government for a public purpose, but the private holder of such a property uh, should be compensated, much like a landowner whose land is taken for a highway is given a fair market value for his or her house? I don't think that there's a one-size-fits-all approach to dealing with these because they're all different, whether it's like a coal plant or a refinery or just like a reserve that you're claiming. And I think in some cases, we have workable models around coal plants of how to deal with that problem. I don't think that there should be like blanket payouts for this because at some point, you know, if you make a bad investment, you you should have enough information to know that it's going to be a bad investment and just own it. I also think that there's some challenges in the legal system around what happens when foreign companies make investments in other countries and how that's dealt with in international law. And I talk a little bit about this in the book, but there's a lot of work we're going to have to to do to to navigate all of that. Your book deals a lot with the challenges and trade-offs of this this transition, but you also have some quite practical steps. So what does a what does a roadmap for phase out look like? Yeah, so I mean this is a multi-decade project and so I talk about five different things 
two of them are things that we should be pursuing in earnest this decade. The first is moratoriums, bans on fossil fuels that could be on exploration, extraction, on export, on technology that uses fossil fuels, such as gas stoves or internal combustion engines. You can think about that on a municipal or regional scale. You could also think about global coordination in terms of a non-proliferation treaty for fossil fuels. Check out fossilfueltreaty.org for that. The other thing we should be doing is ending or reforming subsidies for fossil fuels because they receive between 300 and $600 billion a year of support. Some of those are for upstream exploration and production. Some of those are there's enough experience to know what works. So that's what we should be starting with. And then after that, the, the next three tools are things that are more difficult, but if we spend time building up political power, I think we could make progress on them. One is permission to extract, not permissions around emissions, but actually on extraction. That could be a price-based instrument like taxes on production or the carbon intensity of fossil fuels. We could also think about a quantity-based instrument like tradable permits for extraction when we've had production quotas on all sorts of things throughout history. Another is nationalization, basically meaning putting these into public ownership. The public could determine the levels of production and sunset operations. So it's not an easy task because what happens if you have a new administration that wants to keep going with fossil fuels? I mean, it's a big challenge. There needs to be legally binding mechanisms for for keeping this intention of having all of this go out of business. But actually, this would be a bargain compared to the cost of climate change if done in a buyout fashion. It's doable relative to what we spend on other crises. And if you call it public ownership and control, it's relatively popular. And the third thing I talk about is basically reverse engineering this stuff for carbon removal, using it for large scale, putting carbon back underground. And I think that we should be pushing for public ownership of carbon removal ventures, running them like public utilities. All of this is easier if there's nationalization of fossil fuel companies, something to work towards in the 2030s, 2040s. One question I had with framing or approaching climate change through a supply side measure, trying to limit emissions with supply side measures, is that there's a couple of ways that I think that might make it a lot harder for it to stick. Because climate has been characterized as a free rider problem. Every nation benefits if the climate isn't damaged, but also every nation's incentivized to do as little as possible because they'll get the benefits of a better climate or a less changed climate if everyone else works harder than they do. And that's particularly strong in the case of suppliers of fossil fuels. Suppliers make money currently, and if they behave well and withdraw from production, then those who remain benefit even more. To quote a figure that only two out of 53 producer nations have included supply-side measures in their climate pledges to the Paris Agreement, and yet many of them have got quite ambitious demand-side measures. Is there, is there any appetite for supply-side policies? I mean, do you mean for producer nations or for everybody generally? <laughs> yeah, for, for producer nations, the ones who produce and, and, and benefit from producing fossil fuels today. Well, I think that this is complicated 
by the fact that a lot of producer nations are quite autocratic and the benefits of the fossil fuel production are not equally shared amongst the population. So, I mean, in terms of appetites by the elites, probably not, but you can imagine that moving away from fossil fuels, if there was economic diversification, might have a safer, more stable development path for some of the people in these countries. But I mean, this is one of the main challenges, this geopolitical challenge of how you get these countries to move away from fossil fuels, because discursive pressure or social pressure probably isn't going to be enough. I mean, it's really going to be also ending demand. And so one of my main concerns is that we have this uneven world where people in North America or the EU are congratulating themselves about being net zero. And meanwhile, there's producer nations that are selling to less developed countries that haven't had the opportunity to decarbonize, haven't had the finance for renewables, are still energy poor in a lot of ways. And, you know, so this kind of divided world. And so I think we need to approach this as a geopolitical, diplomatic development, really international challenge and thinking about how to develop roadmaps for phase out for every country and having richer countries support other countries in this. So your book emphasizes that ending fossil fuels is not just a matter of ending the carbon atoms going from the ground into the air, but it's also an opportunity to reduce other forms of pollution, to reduce and end exploitation and corruption. How is ending fossil fuels really such a win-win combination? I mean, how far does it really go towards uh, these broader social political goals? Is it this ideal confluence of both environmental and political objectives? Or is it more of a narrow path that we may be able to navigate? And if everything clicks right, we are able to reap the benefits of both sides of the environmental and sociopolitical equation? Well, I think it makes a big difference in the public health aspects. Is it going to be like the thing that moves us away from authoritarianism? I don't think so. I think that's a much broader challenge and something that's actually more important than climate change in some regards. I think that the book is about ending fossil fuels, but that's only like one part of developing a democratic planning capacity to end things. I mean, that's what the book is really about is being in the Anthropocene, navigating all these both environmental and social challenges, demands that we be able to direct change to plan to end things, whether that be fossil fuels or pesticide use or, you know forms of tech capital. I mean, there's like a whole bunch of things that we could stand to end that are harming people. If we develop the capacity, it's like a social capacity, a governance capacity, then we stand a better chance of being in 2100 in a prosperous and healthy world. One last thing about the book, you you focus on phasing out supply, the supply side of the problem. 
But quite a lot of environmentalists and, and activists focus on the demand side, degrowth, reducing consumption, avoiding, avoiding certain damaging things. Which is going to be easier at, to really have an impact? I mean, I don't think there are any political prospects for degrowth. You know? So I think that it's easier to uh, mobilize people to move away from fossil fuels than it would be to restrict consumption of them. You're saying that like it's a no-brainer, but I get the feeling that a lot of people in the environmental movement think that that's really the only answer, is, is a degrowth agenda. Are they just misjudging the willingness of people to, to change their lifestyles? So I think that we need to keep in mind that there's a lot of people who don't have enough access to energy, which is why I think the degrowth arguments fall flat. I think that that it's true that people in North America, in some places in Europe, on average, need to be consuming less energy, but they need support to be able to do that. So they need reformulated transportation systems. They need help decarbonizing buildings. Those are things that the state has a role in. And it's not necessarily going to impact quality of life all that much. You know, you need the government to help you put in a heat pump so you, you know, you're not using gas, that sort of thing. Is that degrowth? I don't think of it as degrowth necessarily. I think of it as electrification, as decarbonization. But overall, we're going to need a world that uses more energy just because so many people live in energy poverty. I think that talking about degrowth is not politically useful in general, but talking about public ownership and control over fossil fuels, over energy is because people are sick of big companies controlling what they do and making a profit from them and so forth. So I think that there is a political pathway there for these supply side measures beyond what's there for degrowth. So I want to move this into a couple of other topics as we move away from ending fossil fuels at the risk of, of scattering the focus. Something I want to bring up with you in particular is based upon the fact that good chunk of your work in the past has involved going out and speaking with people who are part of communities who may be affected by changes in energy production, carbon dioxide removal, et cetera. And a lot, a lot of your work has taken place in rural areas. So I, I think you have a sense of uh, how people on the ground can view such changes. What are the contours of appropriate public engagement and public participation around decision-making that has wide impacts much beyond those in the local area who may be who may be affected and by way of context on my side part of what's on my mind is hopping over to solar geoengineering there was a uh, a proposed outdoor test of equipment for solar geoengineering and in northern Sweden and Lapland, where you have done some of your work, and this was indefinitely postponed, it appears, due to claims of insufficient public participation and engagement. What's your sense about where's the right balance here between empowering local communities who may be impacted with taking into account the broader public interest, which may in fact be global. There's people in small island nation states in the South Pacific 
who may stand to benefit by the development of such technologies. I'm not sure it's the same for solar geoengineering and for decarbonization. So I think that you know every single person has <laughs> needs energy has a stake on thinking about you know how their energy system is set up and we've failed on public engagement around this which is part of why we have backlash to renewable energy and some forms of energy transition because people feel like it's something that's being done to them to their landscape they're not seeing benefits they're not necessarily able to access that energy. So we need public engagement around decarbonization, around the energy transition very broadly. And I think that it's on the government to set that up. I'm not sure who else would be poised to do it. And what's happened is now we have the situation where a lot of decisions are made by technocrats in CDs, not in touch with what people in rural areas are thinking about. And we also have NGOs that have stepped in to kind of represent the public. And so, you know, the challenges with that come up when talking about things like solar geoengineering. We really don't know what the public thinks. They haven't been consulted. We have NGOs that purport to speak for different parts of the global public, which is troublesome. So I think that we need here too, a broader public engagement, but it's more difficult because it's not something that people know about that is touching their everyday life the same way energy is. You said that we failed on public engagement on the energy side and that we need to do more public engagement and it needs to be broader. How would we know when we've succeeded? What are the criteria for sufficient public engagement? One point of evidence that we have failed is that some relevant stakeholders feel that something is being taken away from them, from their local communities or or from their landscape. If that's an indicator of failed public engagement, what would be an indicator of success? Yeah, I don't think you can simply measure it by, you know, number of workshops held or people spoken to. I think that a real measure of success would be self-rated, asking people, do you feel like you've been meaningfully engaged in these decisions? I think that voting is an important indicator. Community participation is an important indicator, but the real metric of success is from people themselves this public engagement thing, it's a real tension possibly with the aim of phasing out fossil fuels because you could go talk to people and they might say, given these choices in front of us, we pick natural gas, (laughs) you know, we don't pick this other stuff. So if you want to have this kind of democratic public engagement, that's a risk that you have to take. I would actually put that as primary, even above the objective of ending fossil fuels. And and people might disagree with that. It's kind of an experiment. I don't know where either path would end up better. This like super democratic, public engaged version that has fossil fuels in the energy mix for a long time to come potentially, or you've enacted this phase out, but people feel like they have less power. That could be a bad way forward as well. So it, it matters how we do it. 
Couldn't that end up in a type of global not-in-my-backyard-ism, NIMBYism, with some sort of local veto authority over projects that have, that granted have local impacts, but have global benefits? Well, I wonder about, about this because I was looking at a group who's opposed to some solar development in New York, and they were posting these articles about Chinese development of solar in Chile, but connected with an underwater submarine cable, like these sorts of very ambitious, far-flung production zone over here, consumption zone over here type of thing. So that is a concern. Just to sort of bring us towards the end, as I mentioned in the intro, I think your your research is quite interesting because you bridge a gap that's often not bridged. There's often these two halves. And it seems at least from my perspective, that quite a lot of the transformative social and political visions that people have or put forward often come with quite a lot of wishful thinking on the technological or technical side. You know, we can just go back to traditional agriculture, planting trees, and that'll just fix the climate problem as long as we forget and get rid of technology. And on the other half, you have people who perhaps are a bit more technically minded focus on all the specific technological and economic instrumental changes that can be made while treating social change is either an impossibility or, or an irrelevance. How do we go about bridging that divide in a, in a better way? Well, I think all these technical things are extremely socially optimistic. They just don't recognize that <laughs> necessarily. Mm. So thinking about 10 gigatons of CO2 removal is incredibly socially optimistic, but it's not read as such necessarily. As in, who's going to cough up all the money and who's going to move out the way to grow the bioenergy crops and so on? Yeah, who's going to do the work? Who's going to be willing to pay for it? I think Pete and I both see you as something of an outlier in the academic social science scholarship of climate change, of carbon dioxide removal, and more. I think something that I've quite enjoyed about your work over the years is that I think unlike some social scientists, you're quite optimistic, at least optimistic about the possibilities of technology playing a a potentially valuable role, a positive role in the future. You had the the great title for uh, an article on the possibility of of a charming Anthropocene, which I think was quite refreshing because many social scientists writing about the Anthropocene seem a little bit misanthropic. What makes you optimistic about the future? What are some things that give you hope? I mean, a lot of the wonderful things we have come from technology. So to me, it would be odd to write that off as a source of change. I also think that there have been a lot of really positive social changes over history. Given where we are now, it's a tough moment. I think we all realize that. But you know, are we suddenly unable to mobilize some of the changes that we've had the power to do, whether those be social or technological? You know, I agree that with some of these thinkers that it does feel like we might be in a stuck moment where innovation is decreasing and so forth. What makes me hopeful is that social systems are nonlinear. We can have social tipping points and maybe not even realize that they are coming. I also think that technological forecasts in some cases have been wrong. Just think about solar 
that that really surprised analysts about how cheap and available it could become. So I don't feel like things are fixed. I feel like there's a lot of agency. Thanks for joining us, Holly. This was really interesting. And Ending Fossil Fuels, Why Net Zero is Not Enough is available in all good bookstores. Where can people find more of your work uh, and reach you? The easiest way is on Twitter at Holly Jean Buck. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Challenging Climate. Our music is by Peter Dalchuk, and our website is challengingclimate.org, where you can find the show notes for this episode, including all the relevant links and references. If you enjoy this episode, please consider sharing it on social media to help us grow this podcast.